great to be with everyone this morning and to see everybody and to see so many visitors. It's uh, nice to have all of you here. Uh, got close to 11 o'clock and I thought, man, we're going to have like five people here today. Everybody's gone and then everybody showed up at once. It's really great. It's a really pleasant surprise actually to know I haven't run everyone off yet. Uh, we're going to be dealing with a, a bit of a curious story in scripture this morning. Uh, it's one of those from back in the Old Testament, but it's one you know. It's not something obscure. It's just odd. It's odd because it doesn't fit with what we know about the players in the story. They both, they all act in very different, strange ways. Uh, and so we want to examine that because it, it might teach us something about the nature of God. And that's what we're after is to understand God more clearly and to understand what is asked of us in living a faithful life with him. But it occurs in Numbers chapter 20. I know, I say, when, anytime you say we're going to study in the book of Numbers, it's like, whew, you know. But no, we're in Numbers this morning, Numbers chapter 20. But actually, you kind of have to go back a little further than that to Exodus. In the book of Exodus, in chapter 17, there's a story about Moses. And, and, and we need to kind of go back there and look at that first to really understand what's about to happen. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 17. I just want to look at a couple of verses. We know this story really well. The people, Israelites, are following God. They're following to the promised land, but they're out in the desert, and they're suffering, and they're struggling, and they need water. Their livestock need water. The people need water. You can't survive without water, and so they're crying out, to Moses, and, and he, poor Moses, is always stuck in the middle. The people are discontent, and they're ready to kill him and go back to captivity rather than follow after him and follow after God to a promised land. That's a whole other sermon. But they're begging him, please give us water. And he goes to God, and he says, God, they're going to stone me. They're going to kill me if we don't do something about this water. Listen to what God says to him uh, in this passage. Let's start in verse 3. Uh, but the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, what shall, I, uh, what shall I do to this people a little more, and they will stone me? Then the Lord said to Moses, now pay attention to this, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, important verse, verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it. Now, we know that story, right? I think most of us also know the second version of that story. Moses strikes the rock, water flows out, the people are happy, right? But it happened again. It happened again, and that's in Numbers chapter 20. Now they're at Meribah, and here... The people are thirsty again, and Moses goes again to God, but he has a bit of a different attitude, and the results of it are quite different. Let's look at Numbers chapter 20, starting in verse 8. Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron, this is God talking to, to Moses. Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation, and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. Okay, now a bit of a different instruction there. He says, go and speak to the rock. Go and, and do, uh, do a different act, 
Okay, do something different here than what we saw before. So, verse 9, Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, now here is where we start diverging a little from what we saw before. Moses says to them, listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This is the point at which God lets Moses in on a little piece of knowledge that he is not going to finish this journey with Israel. He is not going to enter this promised land that God has promised the people. He's going to fall short because of this. Now this strikes me as odd. I don't know if it does you. First of all, the whole idea of striking rocks and speaking to rocks is a little weird by our standards today. That's not how we get water, but that's how God was working then. So that's odd just in and of itself. The next thing is that Moses does it right the first time to the glory of God and the second time he does something different and in some way offends God. And this great offense is so great that God says, you know what, I'm done. You're not going to enter the promised land. Now think of all the things that have happened to this point with Moses and the children of Israel, all the mistakes they've made, all the ways in which they've become discontent and they've challenged God, and now here we see the last straw. Why was what Moses did so wrong, and why was God so angry enough to punish him in that way, and what in the world can we learn from it? Well, we see God responding in this way a number of places in Scripture. Now, most often, all of a sudden, when Jesus came, he had a different personality. God is the same we see many things that reflect this particular part of God's nature, even in the New Testament and even today. But we have developed this idea that because there's a lot of war and a lot of people being struck dead and a, a different period of time in the, in the story of God and his people, that God was a harsh and judgmental God in the Old Testament and a loving and grace-filled God in the New Testament. Well, that's unfair to God. We have to understand God's actions in their context. He's trying to get his people to a place safely alive to continue their descendants and their genealogy to get to Jesus. Jesus is present in this story even in Exodus, even in Numbers. To understand that God is trying to keep his people alive until Christ can come is important to understanding why he acts the way he does. Also important to understanding this, and I say this often, the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. The way these stories are told and the purpose behind the telling of the stories has a context. It has a meaning and a purpose. And we have to understand that. We have to understand that these stories, as they were shared and told amongst the Jewish people in the generations between them and us, told a story about God and what he did and why he did it. And so the story was written in a certain way. But we see God, like in Leviticus uh, chapter 10, the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, they go into to the altar 
to light a fire, and they're supposed to draw that fire from a particular way, a particular place in a particular way, and light it with a prescribed manner. And by the way, you're only allowed in there when you're invited by God. And they had not been invited. They went in on their own. And they, they, the Bible says, uh, certain translations, they offered strange fire. They offered what God didn't ask for. They offered something different than what God had prescribed. And they died. They were struck dead. Seems a bit harsh. You know, at least give them a talking to first. Maybe a timeout. But death right away seems a little bit extreme. We see in 2 Samuel, the story, uh, they're transporting the Ark of the Covenant, right? What was the rule about the Ark of the Covenant? Don't touch it. They had, they had rings on it. They put the rods through. They carried it a certain way God told them to carry it. Well, they thought they were going to get a little smarter. Technology had improved. We're going to put it on a cart. That's easier, right? Work smarter, not harder. That's my motto. I, I agree. They put it on the cart. They're going down the road. They hit a bump. The ark begins to tip, and someone reaches up and grabs it to stop it. I can't think of a more noble reason to break the law. And instantly struck dead. It's hard to wrap our mind around that. That's not how we understand God. That's not how we understand obedience. We talk about obedience in the context of Christ as our response to God's grace. God has reached down through his son and offered us salvation, and we live lives of obedience, not of merit. We don't earn a ticket to heaven by how we live or by what we do. We maintain and deepen a relationship with God that is essential to having a home with him, but it's in response. Paul talks so much about not being saved by the law. So why is it that God acts so harshly, and why does he seem to take so seriously that his orders are followed? Well, it's not because God is arbitrary. It's not because he just likes to find ways to trip us up. It's not because he's just itching to kill somebody when they make a mistake. And I don't think he's really making an example out of these people. I think we have something about the nature of God that's important to understand, and especially in its context. God's will and his commands and his ordinances, they're not ranked. They're not ranked by level of importance or by some sort of impact that they have. They're not judged in degrees like we adjudicate crime. God's ordinances are God's law. They are his words. They are his will. And they are to be followed. And it's not because there was something so incredibly significant or important about striking a rock or speaking to a rock or carrying the ark on the cart. It's what happens when we decide that we're going to do it a better way or a different way. And it comes back to the verse that Christian read for us from Proverbs chapter 3. When Solomon writes that, he, he wrote words that are, are wisdom that echoes through the centuries. Trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. There are ways that we think are better, but that is not what God has asked of us. There are ways that we think we can improve on what is required of us, and it's not what God is seeking. Notice again the attitude of Moses. And I want you to think back to what we read in Exodus about when he struck the rock the first time and pleased God and pleased the people. And look at what happens in Numbers. Do you notice a difference in his attitude? 
Do you notice a difference in how he placed himself in that scenario? What did God say? I said, pay attention to this verse. Verse 6 over there in, in Exodus. God said, I'm going to stand before you and you're going to strike the rock. God is at the center of this miraculous gift for the sustenance of the people. Where is God in Numbers chapter 20, verses 8 through 12? Where is God? He tells him what to do, and then we don't hear from God until he's pronouncing punishment on Moses. Why? Moses pushed God out of the picture completely. It wasn't the striking of the rock that was offensive. Not that act in and of itself. It was the arrogance of Moses to place himself at the center of a miracle. To push God out of the picture. Listen to what Moses says there to the people. Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? There's a bit of showmanship there. Moses is standing making a big uh, kind of P.T. Barnum display out of this whole miracle. What would you like me to do? Would you like? He's saying me and we and making it about him when he knows good and well that God's the one that told him he was going to bring the water forth if he just did what he said. This is the story of mankind, our relationship with God. God says, if you want to be righteous, if you want to be in my goodwill, if you want to have a relationship with me, live this way. And over and over and over from the most righteous, faith-filled people that we read about in Scripture to you and I, we think we can do better. We think we have a better idea. We think it's no big deal. We place ourselves in the center of the story and say, if I just do it this way, that'll be better. And despite all that God has told us and all that he has shown us, we do just what Moses does and we set ourselves in the middle as the centerpiece of God's work. And we are not. Now, when it comes to obedience, you know, we understand that we're called to a certain way of living. We're called to a certain understanding. And that understanding, though, is not X, Y, and Z, A, B, C, certain rules. That understanding is God sent Christ to die for me. In our Bible study this morning in 1 John, we covered a passage where the author says that if, if you love God, you will love others. If you truly have the love of God in you, you can't help but show it to others. If you truly have a faith and a love for God and his son Jesus, your obedience is a matter of course. That's how you're going to live, because of your faith. Not only do we sometimes disobey God by putting ourselves in the middle of his work and saying we can do better, but sometimes when we take on the, the idea that if I just do more good things than bad things, I'm going to get to heaven, that's also pushing God out of the picture. You understand where we place ourselves in relation to Christ when we do that? If I can do more good things than bad things and get to heaven, why did Jesus have to die? I think that's a question we need to remind ourselves of very often. Not that obedience is not important. Not that obedience is not what God desires, but that obedience from the heart, obedience from faith is what we're called to. What did, what did God say through the prophets? He said, I don't want your sacrifices. 
They actually smell bad to me. I don't want your empty worship. I want your heart. Moses had a heart that became attuned to himself. It became attuned to his desire, his position, his place. Now, I don't want to be too hard on the guy. I think all of us in the position that he was placed in would struggle with some of the same things. But God saw that he could not allow him to enter into the promised land with the people because they would have made him a king. Or Moses would have made himself a king. God has to constantly remind us that he's in charge. He has to constantly remind us that he's in control. And he has to constantly remind us to be humble. And sometimes that's a painful experience. Now, is God going to strike you dead if you mess up? No. No. That's not the purpose today. And that's not what we're called to. And thank God that we're not. We're not called to live on some regiment of obedience like the old law. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing because we couldn't do it. What we're called to is faith in Christ, expressed in our obedience and expressed in love for one another. The mistake of Moses was one of disobedience, just like Nadab and Abihu, just like countless others who did what God told them not to do. But disobedience at its core, at its heart, is an arrogance. It's a lack of acknowledgement that God is in control. It's a lack of recognition that Jesus Christ is the source of our righteousness. And he is our way forward. One thing I noticed about this story is God did not punish the people for Moses' mistake. Moses struck the rock and water did come out. The people had their thirst quenched. God still provided. God will always provide. He will always find a way to get his will done. The question is, will we help carry forth that will or will we frustrate his will? Sometimes we as Christians get in the way of the work God's trying to do. Sometimes we make it about us. Sometimes we try to do too much. It's as simple as this. Jesus Christ died to redeem you, to cleanse you, to make you perfect before the Lord, righteous, acceptable. Now, how should one live who's been given such a gift? I remember when I was in high school at the age where people start getting their first cars and some of us, you know, we got a hand-me-down from an older sibling or I was the oldest in my family, so you know, I got the first car uh, of the kids. But it was interesting as you would see your different friends and peers, the ones whose parents had given them a car, if you look in their back seat and in their passenger seat it was always full of trash and old McDonald's bags and gym clothes it was always dirty but the people that had worked and earned and saved and bought their own car it might not have been as nice a car but they took so much better care of it it was always clean it was always well maintained because they knew the value of something because they knew what it cost when we understand the value of our salvation, 
is when we understand the cost of our salvation. It was the life of Jesus Christ. It took his death to get us where we are. That should be what motivates us to live. That should be what instructs us in how to obey. Instead of putting ourselves in the middle of that story, let's be recipients of that great gift. The choice is laid before us. Are you going to be like Moses to make yourself the person in the spotlight and frustrate the will of God? Or are you going to live more like Jesus who called on the Father to feed the hungry and he took the loaves and fishes and fed well more than our minds can even comprehend is possible with that amount of food? And at every turn, Jesus praised the Father. He was here to reflect the glory of God. And as John writes in his gospel and in his epistles that we're studying, when we have a relationship with Jesus, we have a relationship with God. When we are in him, he is in us. And we will live differently. If you desire to live differently this morning, that opportunity is always available. We offer a time here on Sunday mornings if you want to make a change in your life, be restored to Christ, be baptized. You can make that known. We'll pray for you. We'll walk with you. We'll make that happen. But it's open anytime, anytime to return to a relationship with him or to start your journey in that relationship. God wants you. He desires a relationship with you. If you become too self-centered in that journey, you're going to miss what he has in store for you. See, it's not a matter of God competing for who's more important. God's already more important. It's a question of, will you receive all of the blessings that God has in store? Moses got to be praised for a moment for delivering the water to the people. He got what he was after. But he missed out on something better. Sin is the settling for less than what God has to offer. It's missing the mark. That's the Greek, that's what it means, to miss the mark, to settle for less. Don't settle for less. God has so much in store for you if you'll seek after him. If you have any needs this morning to be prayed for or to be encouraged in some way, let us know as we stand and while we sing together.